Hi everyone, I'm Laura Paskus, senior producer for the show Our Land, New Mexico's environmental past, present, and future on New Mexico PBS. It is August 12th, and you're listening to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. This summer marked the fifth anniversary of Our Land, so we decided to look back on five years of covering the environment at New Mexico PBS. By listening to this podcast, you'll miss the great videography in our segments, but you'll hear the voices of people like climate scientist Jonathan Overpeck, hydrologist Dagmar Llewellyn, Julia Bernal with the Pueblo Action Alliance. You'll hear why students at the University of New Mexico are calling for divestment from fossil fuels and what young people are learning about farming in their communities. We've gotten to know so many great people while working on the show, just tons of people who care about New Mexico's landscapes and rivers and communities and who we can all learn from. So here's that show. Five years ago, New Mexico PBS launched a new project with the show Our Land. We wanted to bring you coverage from across the state to show you places where environmental issues are coming to a head. We've gone from remote canyons to the wall along the border with Mexico, visited the Gila River, and explored the Bosque right here in Albuquerque. We also wanted to help all New Mexicans understand climate science, policy, forest ecology, urban wildlife, traditional knowledge, and more. Over the past five years, each episode of Our Land, whether it was a field piece or a studio interview, has been guided by a love of place. Like each of you, we love New Mexico too. Its landscapes and rivers and wildlife, its communities and cultures. We have respect for the past, and despite the challenges we cover every week, there is indeed hope for the future. To start this look back on five years of the show, we're gonna talk about something that affects all New Mexicans, how climate change is making our desert state more arid. We start with the Rio Grande. This month on Our Land, we talk about the Rio Grande, what's happening this year, but into the future as scientists learn more and more about what will happen to the river and its reservoirs and the rest of us who rely upon this water as temperatures keep rising and we keep having difficult conditions. The impacts of climate change don't just reflect one dry year or one bad season. They intensify one another. They build on one another. We see this in our forests, our rivers, all across the state. One place where it's plain to see how warming plays out in our arid state. Elephant Butte Reservoir in southern New Mexico. It's sad to say that right now we're at about 9% capacity. This, this reservoir can hold over 2,200,000 acre-feet of water. And in my tenure with the district, I've seen it spill over the dam. And I've seen it is lower than it is right now. So it's an unfortunate thing. But when you're in the west, um, droughts happen, 
and we're in a mega drought right now, decadal drought. Gary Esslinger started working here in 1978 for the Elephant Butte Irrigation District. Today, he's treasurer and manager responsible for bringing water to more than 90,000 acres of pecans, alfalfa, chili, onions, and even cotton through Hatch and down to the Mesilla Valley. Last fall, the district told farmers not to expect much water from this reservoir on the Rio Grande. They're anticipating that this could be the worst season in memory. Most of the farmers in this valley are pretty familiar with where we're located right now, and they come up here and they can see the same thing. So it's not any news to them that we are short of surface water. We've been short for, you know, going on 20 some odd years. To survive, farmers have to adapt. They pump groundwater or they fallow fields to use what water is available for higher value crops. I'd hate to see it go away. I hate to see agriculture just d diminish, especially here because it's, it's a great part of this valley. From, from here all the way down to, to El Paso, it flourishes and, and you think about it and um, it's got a great economic benefit to this entire state. Like many dams across the West, Elephant Butte was built by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. Dagmar Llewellyn is a hydrologist with the agency. But now we do it in a more... What Reclamation did from the beginning and is, is charged with is taking what can be a, an inhospitable landscape for human activities and finding ways to make it so that we can thrive here, right? That's what we did in the past by building dams. That was the, the action that we thought was needed at that time. The agency has evolved, though. And I believe that the programs that I work on under the Secure Water Act are what enable us to do the same thing now, which is to try to find ways to take what's becoming a more and more challenging and inhospitable landscape for a lot of human activities and find ways to make them possible and to allow us to continue to thrive here. Our lives have certainly changed since the early 20th century when Elephant Butte Dam was built. And as we've pumped more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we've warmed the climate. There is no new normal. We talk about what is the flow of this river relative to the average, to the normal. But the challenge of climate change is that we're losing the whole concept of normal. For centuries, farmers relied upon the Rio Grande as a snowmelt-driven system. The water you see here predominantly originates in the mountains of Colorado and northern New Mexico, and it builds up over the course of the winter as it snows into a snowpack, and that's the primary place where we actually store our water. Some moisture would seep into the forests. Some would melt through the spring when farmers need it to sustain crops until the summer monsoons. But as arid places like New Mexico warm, they also dry. So think about how your hairdryer works, right? You, you heat things up so that you get the moisture to go into the air. It comes out of our soils, it comes out of our tree roots, it comes out of, and everything that uses water, our riparian systems, our crops, everything all the way down needs more water be, just because it's warmer, just because of the way your hairdryer works. Esslinger is an optimist. 
In his time here, he has seen droughts and floods, and he has faith. We have to trust mankind and trust our, our future to those who will come in here and see new innovative ways to, to help um, deal with the situations, whether it's a drought situation or flood. I mean, my God, if, if we had a flood event here, and I've seen those, I've seen hatch underwater, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's as terrible to, a sight to see as, as this empty lake. Elephant Butte's low levels don't just cause problems for farmers here. Under the Rio Grande Compact, until those levels come up and New Mexico can send the water it owes to downstream users, we can't store water in some upstream reservoirs either. And these problems won't disappear anytime soon. And we have a river that's highly variable in its flows both within the year and between years, and it's just gonna get more variable. So everything, they call it intensification of the water cycle. Everything is just happening more so. The climate of the past that we all came to rely upon no longer offers a map for the future. And the better we understand that, accept that, the better we can know how to face that future. For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Pascas. Over the past five years, we've covered groundwater wells dropping in the East Mountains, the Rio Grande drying, and what a record low snowpack can mean, not just during one season, but cumulatively over time. In this 2018 interview, climate scientist Jonathan Overpeck explains how warming affects the amount of water we have in the Southwest. Jonathan Overpeck has been studying climate change in the Southwest for decades, and he says scientists are observing a shift in how droughts develop. The most iconic drought in New Mexico recorded history was the 1950s drought, and that was a drought that was marked by reduced precipitation, and it was all about reduced precipitation. What we're seeing now in the drought that's going on is that it's more due to temperature increase and less due to precipitation deficit. And as we go into the future, that'll even get more and more uh, so. So the droughts will be really defined by hotness, by temperature, warm temperatures. And that just sucks the moisture out of the soil, sucks the moisture out of our rivers, and leaves the droughts uh, ever more devastating. When Overpeck talks about climate change in the southwestern United States, he's really talking about changes in water, the amount of water that's available in streams and rivers as the region keeps warming on both the Colorado River and the Rio Grande, the southwest's two most important rivers. Warming means less water. Well, the Colorado River is really important to seven states, including New Mexico and there's a diversion of Colorado River water that flows uh, down the San Juan to the Rio Chama and into the Rio Grande. And therefore, every glass of water you drink has a little bit of Colorado River water in it. But really, uh, New Mexicans should also be worried about the Rio Grande. Its uh, problems are pretty much the same as the Colorado River. There's no doubt the planet is warming. Worldwide temperature records over long periods of time tell us that. 
so do tree ring and other records. And models scientists developed over decades show what's happening and where we're headed. Well, our models are uh, well tested now. And a lot of people think that these models aren't so good at simulating the future, but they are really good at simulating some things like temperature. And the reason we know that is because they all agree. They agree with what's happening in Mother Nature, so what's observed, and they agree with you know simple physics. So we have a lot of confidence that the future will be more warming as long as we keep putting greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels into the atmosphere. On the other hand, when it comes to precipitation, there's more uncertainty. The models are a little more mixed. There hasn't been any observed change in precipitation in the upper basin of the Colorado. So the best bet is to go with no change in precipitation going into the future. The biggest uncertainty is what humans will do how much carbon dioxide and methane, greenhouse gases, will continue pumping into the atmosphere. The more we emit, the more temperatures will rise. Well, the news does sound bad. We're gonna lose our water supplies as we warm the planet. Not all of them, but we'll have less and less water the more we allow this planet to warm. And that sounds like pretty bad news. The good news really is that we understand what's going on, we understand why it's going on uh, very well. We know that humans are causing the warming. We know it's the burning of fossil fuels and the emissions of carbon dioxide that are the real culprit. So that's really important because it gives us a, a chance to stop it if we wish. And that's what the kind of debate we need to have in society. Do we really want to risk losing half the flows in our rivers or more? And if we don't, the good news is that we know how to slow down the losses just by slowing down our emissions of carbon dioxide. There are also things we can do here in New Mexico. In other states like Arizona, California, and Nevada, water managers are storing water underground instead of in reservoirs where evaporation is a problem. That way, when we do have good years, like last year, we can bank that water underground and save it for when we need it. At the Pueblo of Santa Ana, elders, young people, scientists are all learning from the past and looking toward the future. In this show, from our very first season back in 2017, we learn about habitat restoration and wildlife. The Pueblo of Santa Ana sits next to the Rio Grande, north of Albuquerque and Rio Rancho. For nearly 900 tribal members, the land is not only home, but an important place that connects them to their ancestors. The river has always been important to us culturally for the Pueblos and for Santa Ana. We have traditional dances, uh, grandparents, parents tell you, and they, and they tie in with it, the ecological system as a whole for the reason why we're doing it. Governor Montoya says protecting medicinal plants and culturally significant areas and wildlife is important for the tribe and that others in New Mexico can see the work they're doing when they visit the Pueblo for events or recreation. I think a lot of people um, no matter ethnicity, people like to see the bosque in its, in its state that it was. The tribe has been working to restore the bosque and the Rio Grande for decades. But far from the riverbanks, there's even more work being done. The tribe's Natural Resources Department is restoring turkey populations, trying to help endangered fish and birds, and tracking mountain lions and bears. 
They've also worked on restoring healthy fire to the landscape and install water features for wildlife. And in 2005, the Tribal Council created a wildlife conservation code. This vision was created by tribal leaders for the benefit of everyone living at Santa Ana. Part of the work is thinning out trees and returning lands to what they once were before colonization and livestock grazing. It's pretty intense, this work. And you have to be out here in the winter and the hot summer, cold. It's just all noxious weeds that are out here, so we try to bring all the grasslands back to what it was back before. When we cut the trees and throw the slash down, then it's not so hot when you put down fire. It brings back all the grasses. I like being out in the outdoors, and it's a good job for me, and it's close to home. I don't have to deal with traffic. <laughs> Most parts of Santa Ana Pueblo are off-limits to non-tribal members and less invited. In parts of the Pueblo's 79,000 acres, pronghorn have been reintroduced after nearly 40 years of being missing from the area. There used to be antelope up here on, this, on the mesa. This is Santa Ana Mesa. And there used to be antelope um, along Highway 550. It was coming kind of um, this periphery herd that would come from the Rio Rancho area. Bringing them back was something that the council requested. The Santa Ana Pueblo Natural Resources Department worked with state and federal officials to gain permits and funding to bring in about 100 pronghorn. They started releasing the animals in 2009. Not all survived. Some were eaten by predators and a few died from the stress of being moved. Others traveled beyond the borders of the Pueblo. There are currently about 70 pronghorn on the Pueblo, and the department is also following mountain lions and other predators that are outfitted with GPS collars. We'll be able to look at what kind of impact are they having, how many animals are they killing on the Pueblo and what species. We're also looking for travel corridors. Are these large carnivores moving on and off the Pueblo, and if so, where are they moving so that we can try to protect those areas and, and, and provide connectivity for wildlife in this area. I think they're off in that direction over there. You want to look Glenn Harper has worked for the tribe for nearly 20 years. He says a changing climate and new challenges will test the groundwork that's already been laid for wildlife and people. Tribal Council has been a leader, in, I think, in the Rio Grande Valley in, in supporting restoration work on their land, knowing that full well that there's uh, pressures from the outside, you know, Rio Rancho, Bernalillo, Placidas, just expanding communities, uh, land use like mining, uh, water issues with uh, uh, the lack of water. And so they know full well that in order to maintain their, their cultural identity, they have to protect their land. Getting outside offers young people, everyone, great learning experiences. But many public lands, even right here in Albuquerque, are not accessible to everyone. In 2021, we learned how young men of color are changing that. During the pandemic, people flocked to public lands, places like parks and hiking trails. So many of us wanted to be outside where it felt safe, to hike, bike, be alone, or be with close friends and family. People walking with coffee. It makes me think about there's so much national media right now about over usage of parks 
during COVID, but it makes me think, but over usage by who, right? Low-income communities still don't have access, and we're gonna try to limit people's access to outdoor spaces. For people without cars, there is no way to reach national parks, state parks, or most of the state's hiking trails. Together for Brothers has one project that helps young men and their families from underserved neighborhoods in Albuquerque, like the International District in Westgate, make it to the foothills of the Sandias in the Bosque of the Rio Grande. for the first time a couple um, at the beginning of the summer when we organized our first hike 90% of the youth organizers had never been to the bosque and these are folks who lived their entire lives in Albuquerque I'm used to you know concrete that's well from from where I'm from when I look at the mountains and the and you know and I and I hear about the bosque and stuff they just sound like faraway places uh, similar to like the Grand Canyon or something like that a place that I shouldn't like you know I couldn't really get to I don't have the time to get to over the summer, the young men started taking city buses to the foothills in the river and shooting videos to show other families how to do it too. Pinch this up, pull down, put this right here. You want your front tire to be the one that gets this on it? And you just make it all. Uh, you can or you can put it in this one, either one. One of the things today when we were thinking of coming doing a hike, we actually thought about first hiking to the Petroglyphs and realized there actually isn't good public transit to most of the public um, sites of the Petroglyph National Monument. And this is so common. Valle de Oro in the South Valley is the first urban wildlife refuge in the United States with a strong environmental justice component to its mission, and yet there's no bus line. Public access, something many of us take for granted, is just not universal. Most of us either need a vehicle or need our parents to take us somewhere, and sometimes we don't feel comfortable riding the bus, so it also allows for us to get some physical exercise and also help us with our mental health, even though it's not really talked about, it's more important than people think. All right, let's stop right here. Nah, man. It's way too hard. All right, let me take a little break. And young men of color don't always know if public spaces are safe for them or their families or what challenges they might face there. Low-income families are often told that things like the outdoors are a privilege or a luxury. And the reality is, earlier today, we asked young people of color to say, what did the outdoors do for you? Mental health, emotional health, physical exercise, time with my family, not connected to technology. And when I think of who, who needs that the most, it's the young people and the families 
in the most impacted neighborhoods. Oh, it's a nice view. I like it. Ramirez says that young men of color from these neighborhoods feel like they don't have a right to public lands, like they don't deserve that access so many just expect. For his part, Grubbs has loved getting outside, and he has advice for other men and their families. These are places for everybody. If you don't think you should go there, go there. Try it out, and you'll probably enjoy it. Young people keep telling us how scary the climate-changed world is. Many of them have even talked about how a lack of action on climate change has made them question the need to go to college, or it's made them feel like someday they won't have families of their own. Demanding action at the University of New Mexico, students are calling for divestment from fossil fuel companies. The reason why it's important for the UNM Foundation to divest from fossil fuels is because we understand that fossil fuels and um, the climate crisis are progressively ruining our lives, our planet, our beautiful world. When UNM is actively investing in these companies, um, they are kind of, in a way, killing us. Um, and it's important for us to divest because if we want to have a future, then we can't be investing in fossil fuels. As an institution, the university is helping us get degrees, helping us get jobs, experience, um, mentorship, and it seems kind of hypocritical for them to be pushing us to graduate and to find all these wonderful opportunities out in the world while they're actively destroying it for us. Most of universities here in the United States um, invest in fossil fuels. Harvard actually um, accomplished to divest from fossil fuels. So we took that as an inspiration and we're saying if they could do it, we can do it too. So that's our goal. Climate change is very important to me. I think as an indigenous person, I've witnessed like how the land and my people and my culture and my language are kind of tied together with it. And so when um, my tribal people and my community experience the um, adverse effects of climate change, it is more direct, it's more, um, it's more intimate, it's more personal at this point. Like it impacts the culture and the language and just like those ties together. I know we can convince everyone to care about the world or at least like advocate like us, but I just wanted them to understand what we're fighting for and if they had a good life, like they had opportunity to study and work and you know like <laughs> um, experience different things, they should at least care that our future generations deserve the same. President Stokes came up afterwards like while we were talking, she said is there anything I can help you with? And so we were kind of asking her about divestment and climate action in general. And she said that divestment wasn't on their priority list, which I'm not surprised about, but um, that they were working on some kind of action plan. Um, sustainability broadly, she said it might not just be environmental stuff. So I have no idea what that means. Um, but she said they're hoping to have that ready by February. We have continuously asked UNM. We've had rallies and protests. We delivered a letter, uh, attended um, meetings and written resolutions. And so um, 
being constantly ignored and pushed to the bottom of agendas. I think that's why we're here today and that's why we filed the complaint in general is because we can no longer like wait and sit around and um, just continue to be ignored. And so I think that's the message of today is that we're going to keep coming and we're going to keep um, protesting and rallying. Across the United States, the land back movement is growing with more and more allies all the time. That movement advocates for the transfer of decision-making power over land to indigenous communities. Here in New Mexico, as Julia Bernal with the Pueblo Action Alliance explains, there's also a water back movement. So lots of people have heard about land back. I'm interested in learning more about water back and what that means here in New Mexico. Yeah, um, I mean, land back is a is a global um, movement, and it's it's not about obtaining like property back. It's not about being like this was our land and we're gonna you know we need to have like the property owner rights of it. Um, it's more about the resurgence of indigenous stewardship and management um, because we believe that you know what we do and our perspective is beneficial for everyone. Um, and the same thing with water. So when we were thinking about what water back meant to us, we thought about how tied land is to water and how important water is in Pueblo culture. I mean, a lot of our ceremonies and songs and dances really do revolve around speaking to, you know, our water gods and asking for um, abundance and healthy watersheds and healthy communities. That's very core to, you know, our ways of life and our and our worldview. And so again, if we were to have a resurgence of that indigenous worldview and identity and how we manage land and water, um, it would be beneficial for everyone. And also just that we need to shift the way we look at water. Um, the water to us, the Middle Rio Grande, that's our, our river mother. That, And so that is a reason why it's important for us to reassert that personhood because if we asserted a personhood on our waterways we'd probably treat her a lot differently you know um, we'd probably have a lot more respect and acts of reciprocity rather than you know um, damming it and allocating it and you know um, with excuse me wasting it even um, and so water back is just really that same sort of concept as like what decolonizing is. I know that that's where it's been a little co-opted lately, but our definition has been, you know, removal of Eurocentric occupations and ideals and a resurgence of indigenous identity because that's the way this landscape needs to be managed. Um, and of course, you know, especially here in the Southwest, you know, water security, uh, water scarcity are real things and they're going to continue to be very real things. Um, and so if there is the opportunity um, for Pueblo people to reclaim their old management strategies, um, we may see the, the health of the river um, look a lot better than what it does now. So it sounds to me like, um, I think sometimes when people hear land back or water back, they get like really defensive and think about it in terms of 
of, of colonizing, basically, mm -hmm. like taking something, keeping it. But it sounds to me like what you're talking about is something that's really different from that, that it's land back and water back is something that benefits lots of people, many people, everyone, mm -hmm. maybe. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, you know, decolonizing is a very long process. I mean, we've been in this period of colonization, you know, for like over 500 years now. Um, and so it's not about like going back in time, <laughs> you know, it's not about like going back in time where there wasn't like technology or there wasn't, you know, um, these human advances. Um, but it was a time where the land was viewed as our earth mother, the water was viewed as our water mother, and we took what we needed and also gave back. Um, and so we're also navigating a foreign language, you know, English. And so in order for us to convey these decolonial thoughts in English is always something too that we have to navigate. Um, land back has been, and water back have been two um, movements that seem to um, align with a lot of indigenous values, but also upset non-indigenous people too. So there's then again, now there's this need for a conversation around, uh, or even just creating spaces to really think deeply about what it means to decolonize. And we're still even, you know, in those conversations right now. Like, we don't have the answers now. There's a lot that needs to be undone, and there's a lot that needs to be learned. Um, but, you know, the way that water is, it's, it's, it moves, it, you know, and if it's stagnant, its quality gets really poor. And so, you know, we view water as a very transformative process. I mean, our river has been changing so much over, over millennia. And um, we need to look at things in that perspective too. And also come to terms with the fact that we and I, we may never see, um, we may never see that change, but at least, you know, we're trying to create space and again, deep thinking for what our futures could potentially look like. Because at the end of the day, indigenous people, we have the inherent birthright to just enjoy our landscapes. And that's the ultimate goal, I think. Um, and inviting other non-indigenous people to also know like what it means for that enjoyment of the landscape. Um, again, it's beneficial for everybody and not just humans, non-human non relatives as well. Whether it's trying to nurture a healthy watershed or facing climate change, these issues we cover are huge and they demand deep reflection. Earlier this year, I wanted to know what theologian Larry Rasmussen had to say about climate activism and the role of faith. On our show, we talk a lot about the science of climate change and cultural issues around climate change. I wanted to talk with you today about where faith fits into climate activism. I mean, someone has said that faith is a citadel uh, perched at the edge of despair. Uh, and I think that that 
is the case when people are in really rough places, whether it's just for themselves personally or in their family or in their community or whether it's a whole nation, even a planet. First of all, I think faith is a kind of way of saying yes to life in spite of everything. I mean, we talk about it that way. Faith is a kind of trust in things that we've not yet seen that they are yet possible. Mm -hmm. And your 2013 book, which I realize we're um, you're in 2022 now, um, but you wrote in this book that as the world has changed, we must learn to sing a new song in a strange land. Yeah. What is this strange land and, and how do we sing a new song? Yeah, good. <laughs> Um, with difficulty. <laughs> the strange land is that we've changed the planet. And what is not in that book, except to be mentioned at the very outset, is that we've actually moved into a ge different geological epoch. I think it's massive that we're, we've gone from the, the Holocene, uh, which relied on a balanced climate, into the Anthropocene epoch, but we will have to figure out a way to manage and adapt uh, civilization if it survives under conditions of climate volatility rather than stability and climate unfriendliness rather than friendliness. So singing, learning to sing a strange, uh, a new song in a strange land then requires certainly creativity, adaptability, resilience, and probably sheer grit. Uh, and it's going to be in the face of suffering on a scale that we have not seen uh, as a result of natural disasters. You shared with me a letter that you wrote to your grandchildren about this coming transition. And you wrote, if the tumultuous world hasn't stopped being beautiful, neither has love stopped being love. Yeah. In this world of huge uncertainty and transitions, what, what does love, what does beauty matter? Yeah, um, a lot. Um, I don't think we find our way except uh, through the kind of relationships that are nurtured by love amidst this changing and changed planet find our way without a sense of wonder, without a sense of being on a journey which is much greater than our little uh, slice of time. Speaking of faith, let's talk about temptation and resisting the temptation to give up or tune out. Here's a short excerpt of a conversation with Professor Sarah Ray, who wrote A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. You write about existential grief and how the root of it is the fear of loss or the terror of loneliness. And you write that there are far more effective ways to address our existential grief than extinguishing ourselves under the weight of it all. What are some of those ways? Oh, there. So many times, I think the the automatic knee jerk reaction to climate grief and to climate anxiety is action, right? Okay, let's let's transform our anxiety into action, and I think that that's really great. And I and I don't 
I don't reject that. I think that's an important thing. We really need a lot of action. <laughs> but unfortunately, if people do not have the existential capacity for action because they're burned out, they're despairing, they're apathetic, they think that what they're going to do doesn't matter, which is the main thing. Um, the problem is too big and they're too small, that kind of thing. If they believe that, they're, they're not even likely. It turns out psychologists show this really interesting um, experiment. Psychologists have done that. I researched for the book that people are less likely to even try to solve the problem if they don't think that, that it can ever be solved, that they can make no difference to it. And so that is where the kind of core of the problem lies in my mind, not so much in what actions do we need to do. They don't even can't even get to action, then no matter no matter how you lay out the list of great things to do, they're not going to do it. They can't even come to class. You know? yeah. <laughs> so depressed. So there was a sense to me that there was something beneath even those actions that had to happen. And then when I started to do a lot of the research on it, really a lot of that is existential. That's existential work that that wisdom traditions, spiritual traditions, um, different types of community action or, or social movements have long had some knowledge about and been able to do, but that the climate movement so far hadn't really done a lot of that reckoning. And uh, I tried to turn some of the attention in the book to some of that interior work of reminding of ourselves, of our connection to each other, our connection to the more than human world. And the, it's, the, um, it's the denial of those connections that's at the root of many of our problems. And so the repair has to happen at that kind of existential level, as much as all of these other external actions also. But they're, they're interconnected. You can't really you know, embolden a movement to take on the challenges as we need to without uh, that kind of interior resilience and, and energy. Yeah, along those lines, you, you write about how seeing ourselves as part of a collective um, and acting collectively versus trying to do things individually is so important. And it made me think of like Joanna Mesa, Macy, and she talks about group action and group work. Um, what are the benefits of this collective action, this group work, this relationship building? You know, that's a, that's a really great question. There's many facets to that. Um, so. Some people say that at the root, the root cause of our, our social crises are the same as the root cause of the climate change crisis, which is disconnection, lack of community. And, and many people, if you look at Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone and you look at the sort of crisis of civil society, the crisis of community that's been sort of almost engineered by the ways that we've designed, you know, not just architecture and cities and, and uh, our automobiles and highways, but also um, we've you know, sort of create a culture of individualism in American society that you're on your own and, and go off and set free yourself free from all of the fetters of your family and, and others. And there's a real fetish of that in American culture. And there's a lot of benefits to that. And I'm not denying entirely that there's some value to that. Um, but it has had the uh, unfortunate effect of making us think that we are alone in our action for the planet. So that, that, that's one way that it makes us, it disempowers us, it, help, it, it, it helps us not able to see, makes us not able to see the ways that we, our actions are in concert already with a huge community of people. What Paul Hawking calls the blessed unrest or some groundswell. Rebecca Solnit beautifully writes about this. And also it makes us not able to take a, take a break when we need to build, build our resources. Many people, young people in particular, feel like they need to sort of burn the midnight oil and, and not sleep in order to do the amount of work that's necessary because the problem is so urgent, right? The 
this urgency of the problem, this next 10 years matters so much, we often hear, makes people feel like, okay, I'll, I'll just work my tail off until the problem is solved and then I'll be able to maybe relax. There's no time for rest. And um, individualism come, shows up also in activism too, in a way that um, undermines our ability to keep engaged in these issues for the long term of our lives. These, this, the problem is not gonna be resolved in 10 years. It's gonna be on, going on for the rest of our lives. And so seeing ourselves in the collective is partly a, a sort of critical thinking tool to keep us energized, right? Like let's focus on the fact that we are amplified in all these ways. I do a network mapping exercise with my students sometimes where I help them see all the things that support them and that they support and ask them how can they enhance those supports. And also there's some really interesting neuroscience about this, that there's sort of uh, the mirror neurons that happens, the things that happens hormonally and chemically when we're actually in space with other people and when we're doing things with other people. And I find it really fascinating that there's things that happen, like if you did an MRI, if you could take a picture of people's brains when they're with people versus when they're on Zoom or when they're on Zoom when they're, versus when they're alone, just the sheer act of being with people, doing something collectively enhances all of the good feels that we might need to have chemically in our body. So there's some, some really cool stuff that happens there. Just even just the neuroscience of it is really important. Connecting in community is so important. So is learning from the past and ensuring there's not just something left, but bounty for future generations. Project Feed the Hood isn't just about one garden, one school, or even one community. It connects farmers today to past generations. Lorenzo Candelaria is a farmer in the South Valley and a mentor for the project. I tell all of the people that come join me to do this labor that we plant many plants here on this farm, but we harvest only one thing, and that one thing is consciousness the ability to understand our connection to this mother that we call Earth. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't have kids working here. But farming doesn't just happen on a 300-year-old farm along an acequia. It can thrive in empty lots, like at Van Buren Middle School, off Louisiana Boulevard. Travis McKenzie is one of the co-founders of Feed the Hood and a teacher at Van Buren. Schools have the potential to grow so much food for our students and for our families and ultimately for our communities. Um, we just have to start thinking about our landscapes like edible landscapes. How can we create a landscape into something edible? About 10 years ago, Mackenzie and Rodrigo Rodriguez started the program. Its roots were an effort to convert lawns into gardens and also to reach young people. Mackenzie says his philosophy is centered on togetherness. People sow and harvest together, and they eat together. And as interns, students do real work and get paid for their time. It changed a lot, because usually at the beginning of summer, I was just laying inside watching YouTube and on my phone. So I wasn't really doing nothing. And then my friend, he, he told me about this job. So it was, it was a really good change. Cleaning up the aisles and like harvesting the, harvesting the stuff is not that hard, but like, digging holes or like the compost is kind of hard. Teaching the kids about compost and really it's carbon, nitrogen, oxygen and water and those four elements create earth and we try to stack it like enchilada style. Last year we got five wheelbarrows full of compost to put back in our garden. Not far from the airport 
Project Feed the Hood has created a garden from an empty lot. Stephanie Olivas is wrapping up her time as a food corps service member with SWAP. Pull that one right there. This is the Ilsa and Ray Gardenio Community Garden. It's our ninth growing season. Uh, previously, it was an emergency landing strip. All this land um, you see is city aviation apartment land. And so we worked with them and many of our local representatives to use this particular plot for growing food. When Project Feed the Hood first started working this land, they had to haul out trash, needles, concrete. It's not a neighborhood known over the decades for its gardens or public spaces, despite the city golf course across the street. It's dense with apartments, most of which are low-income housing. Food access is definitely an issue here. We are, the technical term is a food desert. We don't like to use that term because deserts are thriving ecosystems and thriving communities. What has been created, this lack of food access, is we see as an intentional, systematic problem that has been created. And so the need for, for fresh, nutritious foods is here, um, especially organic, affordable. You know, the community garden, it's free. With that lack of access to fresh foods, we see an increase in other dietary-related diseases. Feed the Hood volunteers and interns transformed the space from compacted dirt to raised beds and planted rows. They added a shade structure, and they plan to eventually add an agroecology center, growing local leaders like Lucero Velasquez as they grow food. We came out here to Project Feed the Hood and we started weeding and I really didn't really know what gardening was about. I didn't know a lot of plants and how to distinguish the leaves from the weeds. But she's learned and now sees her work as part of a broader effort to improve her community. So you guys can see in here too, there's a bunch of ladybugs. I first have a connection with the plant and, the, and getting my fingers in the dirt. Um, I feel connected and I say, plant, you are me, I am you. I'm just helping you grow taller, helping you um, be fruitful. And in turn, it's just a reflection for, for the way that I want to grow. And if my community is there picking out the weeds and, and clearing a path for me so that I can flourish, I'm going to want to do that here in the garden too and help in the little ways that I can. She says gardening is also healing for people who are dealing with violence in their community. The Feed the Hood internship is now named after Donaldo Yanez Reyes. He was a Feed the Hood intern who was killed in Albuquerque in 2017. Just because you're a part of a farming internship doesn't mean it's going to remove the violence from your community, but we can start working together to do it. Yeah, we're planting seeds, yeah, we're planting the garden, but ultimately we're planting ourselves. We're planting and we're growing along with these crops. So every season, we'll learn something. Every season, every year, you might want to do something, maybe you won't get to it, maybe you will, maybe it'll do good, but that's a part of it. It teaches you, man, you can put in a lot of hard work and sometimes bad stuff happens. Sometimes you get a hailstorm, sometimes somebody vandalizes you, but it's really like a teachable moment that we can just keep planting. You know, yeah, we, we roll with it, you know, okay, yeah, it's a bummer, it's sad, let's grieve, but then let's go, let's, let's keep planting, let's do the next thing, let's keep going. That resilience, that, you know, resistance that are part of our people's culture forever, you know, that we're here to resist, we're here to reclaim our food systems, to reclaim our spaces, our community spaces, and really help the next generation think about that and kind of move us into the future. 
Looking back on five years of the show, we also remember to have a little fun. Ever since I was a kid, I was just always fascinated with carnival, traveling circus, sideshow, freak show, folklore, and the entire history. And during the Great Depression, it was the only way people could, a lot of people could make money and be in showtime unless you're wealthy on the radio or something like that. And it gave a lot of people a lot of opportunity just to be fed and employed and people who would be outcasted a chance to shine. And it's just, just the whole aesthetic of it, I just thought was so cool. And I've always thought that. And some, even through getting my biology degree and traveling and trying to do environmental activism, I've always just gravitated towards it. Conservation Carnival is a science circus. Um, we bring the bosque to the public to teach about environmental education. We, we celebrate the bosque ecosystem and we teach water conservation as well through circus arts and performing arts. We've been taking people out into the woods and having them interact with characters from the ecosystem. So we have Abuela Cottonwood Tree, Porcupine, and I don't want to say all the names because it's supposed to be a surprise when you're out there. Oh, horsetail grass. You have been around since the dinosaurs, my friend. You're almost as old as Abuela here. Oh, oh good. What a beautiful day in the bosque. What a beautiful day in the bosque. And actually, I have a friend here. Wake up, Prudence! Oh! Prudence! Oh, dear! Oh! Oh, oh dear! Hello, Abuelita! Hello! You are this! Hello, you are oh, there! I was sleeping, you know, I prefer to nap during most of the day. Yes, you see, Prudence here is a porcupine, my friend. She is a corpuscular being. She sleeps a lot during the day. She does, and she lives on us cottonwood trees. And you eat us too, don't you, That's Prudence? That's true. Bad prudence. It's true. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried it, but this is delicious. This mm. is called cambium, and it grows right under the bark of the tree. And we porcupines just chew and chew on the cambium. It's delicious. We have very sharp teeth, you see. This is my uncle Peter. 
And he's no longer with us. May you rest in pieces, Peter. But you can see his long teeth were cutting through that bark and, and getting to the candium. That's where we get our nutrients, you see. And yes, we also feel very safe up in the cottonwood trees. Yes, let's talk about that instead of the eating us part. Oh, yes. We keep you safe, don't we? Yes. Oh. We are very good climbers, you know. We like to climb high up in the trees so we are safe from the predators. When we have a boiler cottonwood tree out, kids will ask, uh, does it hurt when a woodpecker pecks you? So they actually like really dive in that she is a creature here. That's always really cool because they're, they're not questioning that someone's in costume or anything. They're actually interacting and looking at trees differently again and realizing they're a part of a system, right? Building out this van has been a cure in a lot of ways for my climate anxiety and my depression about it. And creating and finding a community that reacts and wants to be a part of it and perform or just come has been really soothing because, yeah, it is daunting. It's heavy. So if you can be silly with it in any sort of way, why not be healing in any sort of way? If we can spend some time at events or just getting together for these bosky theaters and celebrate what we have instead of keep talking about how it was and how we need to change it and and just say like hey i like that tree or, you know, or like wow i love drinking water it it helps it really does and i speak i speak from personal experience with that because i i was diagnosed with climate anxiety pretty pretty heavily and this was my therapy for it so I'm inviting anyone to come be goofy and be a carny to come, to come bring some levity, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Laura Paskus. Find more environmental content on New Mexico in Focus as part of our show, Our Land, New Mexico's Environmental Past, Present, and Future. You can find Our Land all over the place on the PBS video app, Instagram, YouTube, and you can subscribe to Our Land Weekly. Thanks for listening.